The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So if you grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 2, that is where we are going to draw our text from this morning. Genesis chapter 2. And before we dive into the text, uh, I, I just want to pray just one more time, uh, if you wouldn't mind joining me. God, open our ears that we might hear your voice. God, would you give us hearts that are anticipatory, that are ready to receive from you. And specifically, God, on this, on this Mother's Day, I ask your hugest blessing on the ladies that are joining in on the live stream. I ask that you would minister to their hearts today. And for the men who are, are, are represented here as well, God, that you would use your word to, to bring illumination and, and even to, to promote in them a, a level of, of joyful celebration for the women that you've placed in their lives. So God, have your way through your word. Would you teach us? Would you instruct us? We humble ourselves right now to admit we don't know everything and, and we need to learn of you. So teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in, in this last year, I had the wonderful privilege of leading a team to Uganda. And it was like, a, it, it was an incredible time. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And in the prep time, you know, there were some, some things that God began to stir in my heart that, that sort of surprised me. You know, I've been teaching the Bible for 23 years as a pastor. And um, during that time, I, I have taught through uh, a huge portion of just about every book of the Bible. So um, I, I think with the exception of teaching all the way through the Psalms and through uh, Jeremiah, I think I've taught every book in the Old Testament, and I for sure have taught every book in the New Testament during that time. So uh, I, I've had a lot of time in the Scriptures, a lot of time in the Word, and and so in preparation, I'm thinking about like, okay, what do I what do I share with the the, the people in Uganda? How can I be an encouragement to them? What can I bring that will be a blessing to them? And and during my my time of studying. I, I came across some information that, that just blew me away. It was something I never had seen before in the scriptures. I had never seen how much Africans played a part in the birth of the church. I just had never seen that before. I, I, I couldn't believe it. It was right there in the text in front of me the entire time, and, and I had just missed, over, missed it. I'd passed over it. Um, for example, I think about Simon the Cyrene. Remember, Cyrene uh, Simon the Cyrene was from Africa. And he was there in the crowd when Jesus was being whipped and beaten and, and, and had to transport his cross up to the hill of Golgotha. And, and Cyrene, Simon the Cyrene was pulled out of the crowd to help carry Jesus' cross up the hill in redemption. And this, this moment so powerfully affected Simon that his sons, Alexander and Rufus, became believers. And, and as a matter of fact, they became prominent leaders in the early church. It, it, it was Philip who was running through the desert and, and God began to speak to him to, to come up alongside of the chariot of an Ethiopian minister who was, who was traveling and, and representing Candace the queen. And, and Philip preached the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch, this minister of Candace the Queen. He got saved, got baptized, brought the gospel back to Ethiopia. And to this present day, the church in Ethiopia, the Coptic church, is the oldest surviving original church in the history of the world. And that, that was an African. I think about what we learned in Antioch. And how several of the elders in the early church in Antioch were African elders. 
And, and this multicultural city in Antioch became the birthplace of the very first missionary adventure that brought the gospel to the rest of the Roman Empire. It was, it was there at Antioch. Those elders commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go out and bring the gospel to the rest of the world. It turns out there, there are Africans all over the scriptures. And I had no idea. I had just not seen it. I, I, I didn't realize that it was there. And then if you continue on throughout church history, what you find is actually Africans have a huge contribution to the, the work of the gospel and to theology and uh, the ministry of the word. Great thinkers like Athanasius, who helped uh, codify the, the, the Trinity, and he's the very first theologian to, to use Trinitas, as a reference to the, the, the threeness and the oneness of God. Then you have uh, Tertullian. Excuse me, I had that backwards. Tertullian is the first one. Then you have Athanasius. Athanasius is, is the one who clarified the canon of Scripture. Tertullian uh, clarified the Trinity. And then you have Augustine, who uh, through his personal testimony and in his, his book called Confessions, he, he has, has been hugely influential in the church, especially in the Reformed movement because his work on the sovereignty of God uh, be, became formative in the thinking of, of the Reformed crowd, of these Reformed Christians. Africans have shaped and have con- contributed to the whole of, uh, to the whole body of, of Christian thought and work uh, throughout the ages. And, and I've been teaching the Bible for 23 years and never seen that. I, I, how strange is that? How strange is it that we read with a sort of filter on? We, we think about our own culture and we think about our own circumstance and, and I see the Bible through the lens that is mine. In some ways, this is how all of us read the Bible. We read it from our Western mindset. We read it from uh, our, our, our cultural setting, from even our, our specific gender setting. And, and we look at the scriptures through that lens. And it causes us to see and emphasize certain details. And, and at the same time, maybe to not carefully think about and to not carefully consider other details. And, and, and as a matter of fact, I would say this is one of the greatest joys of studying the Bible. I find that I am always coming back to the same text of scripture and then the clarity just intensifies. I begin to see it deeper and, and, and more full in, in a richer way. I think about it like this. Do you guys remember old Razor phones? Uh, you remember the, the Razor phone? Were, I think they were some of the first ones to come out with cameras. And it was like a super cool thing to be able to take a picture on your Razor phone. Now, if you take the quality of picture from the Razor phone in you know, the early 2000s to an iPhone today, to the newest model of iPhone. The pictures don't even compare. Those Razor phone pictures are so pixelated that you, I mean, you can see what's there, but not with the depth and not with the clarity of what comes with the iPhone. And I would say the course of my growth and discipleship with the Lord is that with increasing clarity, I'm always being reformed and, and reshaped by the Lord through the Holy Spirit, by the scriptures, to see with greater clarity the things that God sees. Now, this is a problem for me uh, in, in some respects, my, my lack of perception. Uh, matter of fact, just last night, uh, I was looking for some trail mix in the cupboard, and I'm calling out to my wife in the living room, and I'm like, hey, have you seen the trail mix? I know it was right here. And she's like, it's right there, babe. It's there. And I'm like... I don't see it. And you know, I'm scanning the shelves and I scan all shelves carefully and in the back of my mind, I'm hearing this voice that I've heard before, which is, I'm going to come in there and I'm going to look right at it and I'm going to see it and then I'm going to look at you like you're dumb and realize that, you know, um, you, you have an issue where you cannot see the most obvious things that are in front of you. And so I'm, I'm, I'm telling her, I'm like, I don't see it. I feel like somebody moved it. She's like, no. No, it's there. I scan again. I go out. I scan the, 
the countertops. I think maybe the kids had it. And I, I, I go and I open the fridge, which I don't know why trail mix would be in the fridge, but I think, well, maybe it's in the fridge. Maybe a kid stuck it in there. And, and then I, I go back to the pantry. I'm like, I don't know. And, and as I look up, there is the trail mix right in front of me. <laughs> it had been there the whole time. And I didn't see it. My wife, of course, is, is nodding and said, yeah, see, I, I, I told you. I told you it was there. So question for you as we, as we dive into the text, as we think about things this Mother's Day. Have you ever wondered what it may be that is hidden in plain sight? Have you ever wondered what kind of new area of growth could be experienced? If you just, if you just saw more fully, if you just saw what was in front of you differently, from a different perspective, from a different angle. And on Mother's Day today, I I would like to invite us to consider a different perspective on the story of Scripture. I would like us to to maybe do a little exercise in in, in perspective-taking. And to consider the unfolding story of the gospel and what it might look like instead of from the perspective of disciples and and men and, and male preachers throughout the ages, I wonder what the gospel might look like from the perspective of women. I want us to allow our hearts to explore the, the profound, the essential role that women have played in God's story of redemption. I I think we've all heard sermons on Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and the disciples. And we've we've all heard that male perspective. But it's interesting as you begin to look through the scriptures how many women pop up in the story of God not just pop up, not just as a sort of side note, but are central figures to the story of redemption. And I I want us to think about this. So we're going to take sort of an overview of Scripture. I'm going to do my very best to keep it as succinct as possible. I I have nine pages of notes, which means we could be here till Mother's Day is over. But uh, I'm going to do my best to kind of keep it short for you. Uh, let's take a look first of all at the story of Eve. So the Bible opens up in, in Genesis with successive claims that everything in the world that God has made is good. I mean, he looks down on everything. He sees, you know, the fish and the plants and the land and the air and the, the, the heavens filled with celestial uh, stars and, and, and planets. And, and he says, oh man, it's so good. And then he gets to the sixth day and he makes man. And, and on the sixth day, at some point, Genesis chapter 2 tells us that he looks down and he sees man, just Adam, by himself. And instead of saying it's good for the very first time in all of redemptive history in, in, in for the very first time since everything has been made god has a negative comment to make it's the first time he says oh it's it's not good it's not good that man should dwell alone and so he says in in, in chapter 2 of verse 18 then the lord god said it's not good for the man Uh, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper that is fit for him. That word helper there is the word ezer in Hebrew. Now, the word ezer pops up 21 times in uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Two times it refers to Eve, and it's this passage here that that, that that phrase comes up and is, is used to describe Eve two times. Three times it also describes powerful nations that, uh, that Israel was seeking to have come and help them in conflict. But 16 times, eight times, the, uh, more references to, uh, to uh, a helper being God than, than to it being a, a woman. 
The word ezer, the word helper there, is, is referenced 16 times as being a way that God describes himself or a way that God is described by those that follow him, that God is a helper. He's the one who comes alongside us in our helplessness. God is not subordinate to his creatures. So, so any idea that the word helper or easer would, would somehow mean that there's a, a subordination, that there is like a, a lesser than, greater than type of relationship should just be done away with. Because if God is referring to the woman, to Eve as the helper, and then refers to himself as the helper, he cannot be saying that he is somehow subordinate to man. Matter of fact, in his book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, author Philip Payne puts it this way. The noun here used, easer, throughout the Old Testament does not suggest helper as in servant, but help as in savior or rescuer or protector as in God is our help. In no other occurrence in the Old Testament does this refer to an inferior, but it always refers to a superior or an equal Help expresses that the woman is a help, a strength, who rescues or saves man. Well, what does Adam need to be saved from? Well, there's probably a longer list. But, ultimately, God says he needs to be saved from being alone. This work that I've given him is not something that he's supposed to do on his own. I I don't want him to to labor on behalf of me in the story of creation by himself. And so I'm going to create the perfect helper for him. So, Adam, when when God makes the woman for him, wakes up and he sees the woman and and he looks at her and, and the he breaks out in song, sort of spontaneous singing. And he says, oh, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She, she's got bones just like I do and, and, and flesh just like I do. I, I can't believe this. She's the perfect counterpart to me. I've beheld in every area of creation that, that there are all kinds of things. They all seem to have a counterpart that is perfect for them. But I have never had a helper. I have never had a counterpart. She is exactly, perfectly matched to me. And he sees her as a blessing, as an, as an equal in every way. Now, in Adam's mind, Eve is the perfect partner the perfect helper, the perfect counterpart. The woman was not created to serve the man, but to serve with the man. Without the woman, the man is only half of the story. She was not an afterthought or an optional upgrade. She was not uh, some addition or addendum to a self-sufficient man. But rather... God said in Genesis 2.18 that without her, the man's condition was not good. God's intention in creating the woman for the man was that the two would be partners in the many tasks involved in stewarding God's creation. Now, if you're new to the scriptures, you know that the story kind of takes a sideways turn from here. (laughs) By the time you get to the very next chapter, we find that both the man and the woman fall into sin. They're, they're de- uh, Eve is deceived by the enemy and she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which she was forbidden to do. Now, Adam sees it a little bit more clearly and he just, just flat out chooses to rebel against God. But in the middle of that, their eyes are opened. They realize that they have, they've been separated. Their, their relationship with God has been affected and severed in some way. And they find themselves hiding in shame in the garden. But God comes pursuing them. He comes after them. And, and, and the very first thing he deals with is his enemy, the serpent. The very first thing he does is come to the serpent and, and, and come to him. And in Genesis chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 14... 
The Bible tells us that the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you deceived Eve and brought sin into the world, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So he's talking to the, the creature, the serpent. But then he begins to speak to the power or the entity behind the serpent, his enemy, Satan. And he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he that is her offspring shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel now here is the very first mention of the gospel it's called the proto-evangelium and in this first mention of the gospel, God makes a, a, a promise to the enemy in the presence of Adam and Eve immediately. What is that promise? He says, I, I, I'm going to send a rescuer. I'm going to send this rescuer through Eve. The offspring of Eve is going to be the one who comes and ultimately crushes your head. Now, he'll be wounded in the process. You will bruise his heel. But the, the offspring of Eve will be the one that delivers man from this sin. This is the first mention of the gospel and the plan of God in the entire Bible. And it contains in it a promise that Eve will live to bear children. And that one of the children will ultimately crush the head of the enemy of God. And it's in response to this moment that later on in chapter 3, in in verse 20, Adam gives his wife a name. Notice what it says in in chapter 3, verse 20. It says this, Then the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now this this is hugely important. It's important because, do you remember what God said? to Adam and Eve about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die, right? In the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. But here, after hearing the promise of God that life would come from Eve, that rescue would come from Eve, Adam looks at his wife and he says, I'm going to call you Eve because the name Eve means mother of all the living. You see, this is the first example of faith in the Bible. Adam and Eve heard the promise of God that rescue was coming through the woman, and they believed. They believed the promise. And in response to them believing the promise, God immediately clothed them with animal skins. He clothes their nakedness, and he, and he covers their sense of fallenness and their sense of shame. In other words, Adam and Eve hear the promise of God that life will be restored to them throughout the motherhood of Eve. And when they believe that promise, God takes away their shame. Oh, man. Such a powerful, powerful picture of the gospel there. And it doesn't stop there. This theme gets repeated throughout the scriptures again and again, all the way throughout the scriptures. If you flash forward in in the book of Genesis to a, a, a couple named Abram and Sarai, Sarah is, is, Sarai is, is unable to have children. She's barren and she's old. She's elderly. But God comes and, and he meets Abram and Sarai and he makes the promises. Nobody's going to call you Sarai anymore. Everybody's going to call you Sarah. Nobody's going to call you Abram anymore. Everybody's going to call you Abraham, which means father of a multitude. I'm, I'm going to give you guys children. Now, when this promise comes, <laughs> it's funny because, because Sarah hears the promise. She's an old, older woman now. She's in, in her late 80s, early 90s, right? And she goes, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'm going to have a baby. <laughs> okay. Uh, here, is, here is the King Jeremy translation. Uh, you think I could get lucky at this age? Uh, well, God says, yeah, <laughs> it's going to happen. Matter of fact, Hebrews 11 
Uh, chapter 11, verse 11 tells us that she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered God, the one who had promised, faithful. And so she did get lucky. <laughs> she got lucky in faith. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> a year later, she has a son. You know what she named him? Isaac. Why? Because the name Isaac means laughter. God took her shame and her sorrow, and when she believed, she turned it in, he turned it into joy for her. And he fulfilled his promise. She had a son named Isaac. Now Isaac goes through a season where his wife is not able to bear. And she also is barren. And he prays to the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 25, he prays to the Lord. And God answers his prayer. Just like he answered the prayer of his parents. Abraham and Sarah. And his wife turns up pregnant. Rebecca turns up pregnant. Now, while she is pregnant, she uh, experiences a, like a lot of sort of tumbling around of, of the baby in her, her womb. And so she, she then goes to the Lord, seeks the Lord. Now, this is separate of Isaac. Rebecca goes to the Lord and she, she's like, what is going on? Is there something wrong with the baby? What is happening? And, and the Lord says to her, no, there's nothing wrong. Matter of fact, you've got twins. You're double blessed. And they're at war with one another. You have two great nations that are, that are fighting with each other in your belly. But the, the older, he says, the older of the brothers will serve the younger. The firstborn will be the servant of the one who is born second. And Rebecca believed. It wasn't until the next chapter, in chapter 26 of the book of Genesis that Isaac gets clued into the fact that God is continuing to maintain his covenant promise. The one that he made to Abraham and Sarah now has been extended to Isaac and Rebekah. And God would affirm his covenant again with Jacob and his family. And Jacob would bear 12 sons. And those 12 sons, after some family drama and a little bit of dysfunction or a whole lot of dysfunction, they, they find that that their entire family makes a move over to Egypt and they will spend as a family the next 400 years there in Egypt. The, the original family will, will die and be buried, but God will continue to bless the Israelites as they lived in the land of Goshen in Egypt and they began to multiply and do well there. So much so that 400 years later, Pharaoh, the, the guy who's in power in Egypt, looks out and he says, man, these guys are going to outgrow us population-wise. We've got to do something about this. And so he, he starts to try and convince the, uh, the midwives, the Hebrew midwives in Israel, that what they should do is that when the mother is on the birthing stool, if the baby is born and you see that it's a male, he says, just kill the baby right then and there. Just, just execute the baby and, uh, and, and only allow females to be born. Well, there were two Hebrew servant women, Shifra and Pua, from Exodus chapter 1. They received this command, and they promptly, because of their faith in God, ignore it. Exodus chapter 1 verse 17 says that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded. And as a result, the scriptures go on to say that God blessed those two midwives, and they had families of their own. So, so finally, the, 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 the children of Israel continue to multiply, and God uses women then to save the population of Israel. And, and then, after that moment, uh, God begins to, to use another woman. Uh, so in, in final desperation, Pharaoh just says, okay, look, if you see any Hebrews having any babies anywhere, if they have a baby boy, take the baby and throw it in the Nile. That's what you're to do. Just, just kill all of the male children from the Hebrew women. Well, there was a man who was a Levite who was married to a woman named Jochebed. She was one of the wives of, 
or she was the wife of the, this descendant of Levi. She becomes pregnant, carries the baby to full term. When it's born, it's a baby boy. And for three months, she hides this little baby, Moses, from being tossed into the Nile. She protects him. But, but she knows something. You see, apparently, the history of Abraham... And, and, and Isaac and of Jacob was being rehearsed, rehearsed in, in their culture still. And, and so when she hears the story and she knows the history of, of Adam and Eve and of Noah and God's preservation and God's choosing of his own people, she hears that story and she then takes that story and applies it in her present situation. She says, I, okay, maybe God is going to rescue through my son, through my child. Maybe I'm an inheritor of the promise. And so you know what she does? She comes up with this idea. She learned it from Noah. She builds an ark and she pitches it within and without with pitch. She places the baby in it. And what does she do? She puts it out on the water in faith. (laughs) She says, okay, God, this baby's yours. I trust you. You're in control. Little sister, Miriam, obviously probably protective of baby brother begins like scurrying down the side of the banks of of the Nile River and watching the basket as it floats down and and behold it floats into the bathing spot of Pharaoh Pharaoh's daughter and and this woman now sees the basket, hears the crying, sends one of her female servants to go out and grab it. They grab the basket, they open up, they realize, oh, it's a Hebrew child that has been cast upon the waters. Just then, Miriam pops her head out of the bushes. She says, oh, did I, did I, did I hear baby? Oh, well, you know, I know some nursemaids back in, in the land of Goshen. Maybe, maybe I could fetch a, a Hebrew nurse for you to nurse the child and pharaoh's daughter says that's a great idea and so god preserves the one who will be the deliverer of israel through the hand of women through the hand of these ladies who had faith who believed the promises of God, who understood the scriptures, who knew what God had done and believed that he could do it again. They believed and God responded to their faith. Later on in the story of Moses, it is a woman who again saves Moses' life. The person who's going to kill him this time is the Lord because he's not been a part of the covenant promises. He's not partaken in the covenant promises within his own family. He's not circumcised his own children. And so, God uses Zipporah to save his life. Remember, after the the children of Israel cross the Red Sea, they get to the other side, and it is Miriam, the sister of Moses, that leads the entire congregation in singing and exalting the Lord. The Lord, and they, they, he said, she leads them in a song that says, "God, you have caused the horse and the rider to fall into the sea. You have delivered us." It was it was Miriam. Later on, as they make their way into the promised land, the daughters of Zelophehad have a a, a huge role in preserving property rights for women who have no descendants. Then you have the story of Deborah in the book of Judges, who, who is a prophetess and a judge in Israel, and how God uses her to encourage Barak in battle and to deliver Israel from the hand of its oppressor, a man named Sisera, an enemy. And, and in that battle, who is it that delivers Israel with finality? It's a woman. Her name is Jael. And Jael defeats Sisera the way that any woman still continues to defeat a man, through his stomach. <laughs> she gives him some warm milk. He falls asleep in her tent. And then she grabs a hammer and a tent pole and drives it through his temple and kills him. 
Two books in the Old Testament are dedicated to women. Dedicated to women who, by the will of God, by the providence of God, by the hand of God, were instrumental in preserving the plan of God that the gospel might come to fruition. Ruth becomes the, the grandmother of Jesse, who was the father of David. Excuse me, of, of David uh, and the mother of Jesse. There are stories of, of Esther and how Esther uh, preserves Israel. There was, a, there was a, a time where Israel was held in captivity and there was a plot against God's people and, and, and Haman was going to wipe them out. And, and it was Esther who was raised up for just such a time as this that God used to save and to thwart this evil plot against them. Again and again and again, women are at the center of the story of God's work of redemption. All the while, the prophets continue to to say, listen, the the Redeemer is coming. The the, the promised one is coming. The one that that, uh, Eve heard about in Genesis 3.15, the one that was prophesied would come through the line of Abraham and through the house of Isaac and through the house of Jacob and through the house of David. That one is still coming. And so every Hebrew woman grew up with this idea that maybe I will be the one who bears the Messiah. Enter the New Testament. And a young teenage girl named Mary receives the good news that she indeed is the chosen one, the one to be the vessel which will bring the Messiah. Mary is the first one to receive the good news that Jesus has come. And then there's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who gets a kickstart from her son while he's still in the womb. He's in the womb, and, and when Mary comes, who's pregnant with Jesus, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, kicks her in the womb, and she becomes filled with the Holy Spirit, and she begins to prophesy that Mary is bearing the Messiah, the promised one of Israel. She's the very first one to acknowledge what is taking place. Shortly after Jesus is born, it is a female prophet named Anna that comes to the temple in the spirit. She'd been fasting and praying and longing for the Messiah and God spoke to her. There he is as Jesus is being dedicated in the temple. And and she goes out and she begins to tell everyone. She becomes one of the first proclaimers of the gospel. Then as Jesus grows up and he becomes a minister and he begins to bring the gospel message of the kingdom to the world, do you know how he did that? Do you know how he, how he bankrolled that? How he financed that? Well, fortunately, the scriptures tell us. It was a women's finance team. Jesus was set free to bring the gospel of the kingdom. His disciples were set free to bring the gospel of the kingdom because Luke chapter 8, let me just turn there real quick. Luke chapter 8 tells us this. The first three verses. And soon afterwards, he, that's Jesus, went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. So there's Jesus and his disciples. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, which was Herod's household manager. And Susanna... And many others, now listen, listen to this, who provided for them out of their own means. Jesus' preaching and miracle working and proclamation, the work that the disciples were doing, was financed by women. By women who attended to their needs. It was women who were the first at the resurrection. It was women who were at the trial. It was women who were at the cross. There was not even, there was only one man recorded at the cross, and that's John. The rest were women. It was women who prepared Jesus' body for burial and and, and ran out of time and were going to bring back spices. It was women 
who were the first on scene on resurrection morning. It was women who first heard that Jesus had been raised from the dead and were told then to take that message back to the disciples and tell them so that they might believe. It's women who are present throughout the story of the gospel. It's them at the burial. It's them at the resurrection. And as you continue on through the New Testament, you find also that, it, that the women are throughout the New Testament as well. They're there and they're present among the 120 disciples that are in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. It's, it's them and they were present when the Holy Spirit filled that room and, and, and the tops of people's heads lit on fire with the Holy Spirit and they also, the women who were present also, began to speak in other languages the glory of who God is. Peter, as a matter of fact, keying in on this, it was a signal to him. He preaches in, in Acts chapter 2, the first gospel evangelistic message, and, and the message that he preaches is this. This is what God said would happen through the prophet Joel, that, that what would happen was, was that people would be filled with the Holy Spirit in the last days, and fathers and sons and mothers and daughters would be filled with the Spirit in equal measure. It is women who are filled with the Spirit and begin the work of proclaiming the gospel. In the early church, the first convert in Europe was a woman in Philippi. Her name was Lydia. And she's a wealthy businesswoman. She has her own business and is very well to do. And this wealthy businesswoman opens up her home to the first church in Philippi, one of Paul's favorite churches. And Paul stayed in this single woman's house with his other disciples. And, and, and he taught there and helped found a church there. And he loved the church at Philippi. She helped finance Paul's future journeys. She used her business and her ingenuity, her, her wit and her smarts in the marketplace to help fund the ministry of the gospel as Paul went around to the world. We see that Eunice and Lois were instrumental. The mother and grandmother of Timothy were instrumental in raising up Timothy in the faith because apparently his father wasn't doing it. And they raised him up and they grounded him in the scriptures so that he might be an effective tool for God's glory. Listen. Women are throughout the scriptures. It's all there. It's all right in front of us. And maybe it's because most preachers are, are, are men. And maybe it's because guys don't listen to probably enough sampling of women. I, I, I don't know what the reason is, but it's so easy for us. And I'll tell you this from my own perspective, as a man, as a preacher, that much like my experience in Uganda, my experience in this area has been true too. Many times and for countless years, I have read past the important role of women in the story of redemption. And it's been right in front of me the whole time. From the beginning of the Bible until the very end, we see God using women. Matter of fact, if you, you think about it, you go back to... You go back to the very end of the book, to the book of Revelation, the very last invitation that you hear is the voice of a woman because the spirit and the bride say, come, drink from the well of salvation. Come and receive Christ and enter into his kingdom and, and be a part of these promises. It is, it is the female voice of the church of God calling out and saying, be saved. Know Jesus. Come to him. From the beginning, from, from Eve's promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, 
to Mary's statement, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. In Luke 1.38. To the bride's prayer in Revelation saying, Come, Lord Jesus, we long for you. The voices of women have joined together with their brothers under the power of the Holy Spirit in one ageless chorus to their king. And today on Mother's Day, it is a time for us to take note of the fact that ladies around the world, around us, in our homes, the ones we call sister, the ones we call wife, the ones we call mother, are worthy of honor because they have been the instruments by which God has brought about the redemption of mankind. By which God has continued to sustain and and, and to proclaim the gospel throughout the world. God's promise to Eve is fulfilled in Mary, but it's been proclaimed in every woman who's become a follower of Christ since that time and to great effectiveness. You'll notice that it is often the women that are the first to respond. It is often the women that love to fellowship. It is often the women who are better students of the scriptures and love to sit at the feet of Jesus. You'll find that it is often the women who raise their hands in worship It is often the women who do these things. Now, this is not just to exalt one sex over the other, but I'm I'm saying, listen, God has gifted us with women that call us deeper as men. God's promise was fulfilled. God's promise to Eve was fulfilled in Mary. It's been proclaimed in homes and in the marketplace, in education centers and on missionary fields and and in churches by the hand of women throughout the world. Ladies, listen, you don't just have a seat at the table. You have a purpose there. God will and has used women throughout the ages who simply lift their hand and say, here I am, Lord. Let it be done to me according to your will. God's mission to save the world has always been accomplished through not the individual roles of men and women, but through the complementary roles of men and women. Through the, through the harmony, through the concert of the sexes, God has been given the palette by which he sings the song of redemption to the world. It's always been the story of Adam alongside of Eve, of of Abraham alongside of Sarah, of Isaac alongside of Rebekah, and and Moses alongside of Miriam, and Joseph and Mary, and Priscilla and Aquila, male and female disciples throughout the ages. Can you see it? Can you see what's been in front of us the whole time? Men, now is the time to give honor to whom honor is due. To celebrate today the women in our lives. Not just because of motherhood, but because the gospel that you have believed, the gospel in which you now stand, the gospel that you have received and which has saved you has been carried in the wombs, lifted upon the shoulders, and preached upon the lips of women throughout the ages. From young women, teenagers like Mary and Miriam, to the aged like Anna and Lois, God has always used women for his glory. Amen? We're going to pray here, wrap up our time in the Word, but as we do that, I just want to make you aware that when I'm done praying, Kathy Johnson is going to come up and join me here on stage for a little discussion, a little Q&A. Um, and I'd love for you to tune into that. She, she's here with some practical advice as we kind of explore this topic together. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to think about and focus on uh, the, the glory of what you have given us in the gift of women among us. 
this is not an accident. It's not an addendum to the story that this is your purpose. And so God, would you now have your way as we talk, as we discuss these things together? May this be equipping for your church and may it bring glory to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Kathy? Jeremy. (laughs) How you doing? I'm good. Good, good. I'm so thankful that you'd agreed to do this. For those of you who may not know, Kathy is the lead of our women's ministry at Heritage. And uh, I've said this for years, but it's completely true. The women's ministry is the most vital and alive ministry that, uh, that is at Heritage. With so many of our gals that are involved, it's really, really incredible. Uh, you've done amazing, amazing work in that. And I also know a little bit about your history. I know that you have had many seasons in life, that uh, you've been a mom with littles, right? Crazy boys running around, lighting stuff on fire and doing things they shouldn't. Oh, yes. Uh, I know that you've been uh, a mom of preteen and teens, uh, a mom with tremendous grief because of the loss of your husband and the father of your children. I know that you've been a single mom and a mom in a blended family. Um, I know that you've been an empty nest mom and a mom of grown-ups and a mom of prodigals. Yes. You've experienced the full range (laughs) of motherhood. And so uh, when you speak into the situations of moms today on Mother's Day, I I think you speak with a level of authority. So I want to ask you a few questions here. Okay. Okay. What has been the hardest season for you as a mom and why? Well, there's been a lot of hard seasons. (laughs) But as I think about that, probably the the most difficult season was um, the prodigal season. And honestly, I'm still there. But at the time when it first happened, it was... Uh, I had three teenage boys. I, my, my husband had died, and I was um, now in a blended family. I was pregnant. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I was dealing with the pain of having a son that was, was um, in a very rebellious state. Um, so I think that most, the, the, what made it so difficult was because we want so much for our children to be followers of Christ and that's the most important thing and and yet I'm trying to juggle all the other stuff that's going on in the family um but God gave me a a strength that I that I can't I mean you know we can't explain that strength it it comes from from his the Holy Spirit in me and and even though it was difficult and hard I can say honestly that there were moments of joy there was joy in that time even um as I as I grieved and I, I wept and I dealt with all the other stuff that goes along with being in a blended family and dealing with a, a son who has chosen to walk away from the Lord. And, and um, so it was difficult, um, but I learned a lot. I learned about letting go. I learned that he belongs to God, mm. not to me. And um, so that was a, a huge lesson. And so then it's a, then I was able to, to, to take my hands away and say, I trust you, God, in this, yeah. even though I can't understand. Yeah, yeah. But I have the hope. And so, yeah, yeah that was probably yeah. the hardest time. For I all you moms out there that might be wrestling through a difficult season, uh, man, if I could encourage you to take these words to heart. Mm. Uh, they're God's project, not yours. Yeah. And you can trust God with them, just like... You, you've trusted God to, to meet you and to find you. Yeah. Um, second question here. What has been your greatest joy as a mom? Well, that's easy to say. Um, I think the greatest joy as a mom is to see uh, my children who have chosen to follow God. Um, and they love the Lord. They've chosen spouses that love the Lord. They're teaching their children to love the Lord. Yeah. Um they're marrying fellow believers, and uh, I really can't even put into words the joy it is for me as a mom to sit back and watch my um, my children uh, be godly spouses and godly parents. 
and teaching their children to love. That that brings me the most joy. Yeah. Yeah. I know you were sharing with me earlier even that you got into a theological discussion with your son. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, I, I just think being able to talk as a family about the word, even if you like, you don't see certain things sure. the same way, the fellowship that yes. is there is so powerful. It's like the most intimate part of your heart being able to share that with one another. Yeah, that's true. I can see why that would be your greatest <laughs> joy. Yep. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of controversy <laughs> over over the idea of a complementarian church versus an egalitarian church, which are all big fancy words for those of you who are out there. Uh, complementarian means that that there are different roles for men and women that God has created mm-hmm. them differently for different functions, but that they're meant to work in concert and complement one another. And then egalitarian says no that there there uh, isn't a difference in roles. Um, and that men and women are, are created all for the same types of roles, the same types of purposes, and anyone can step into any of those roles at any time, um, regardless. So, uh, most, I think, progressives see the language of a complementarianism that, that men are called to lead. They see that as oppressive and, and maybe archaic, right? Uh, and... And I would imagine probably in your time in women's ministry that you've encountered a few women that really struggle with that, especially if they're coming from harsh men, if they come from backgrounds where men have taken advantage of their power. Um, and, and so I guess my question to you would be, um, you know, can you, can you paint for us a picture of what a healthy complementarian church looks like when it's healthy when it's right that's a really hard question to answer (laughs) um but i mean i have in my mind that when i read the story especially in genesis and how god created us as equal image bearers um and that and, and, and Adam's response to Eve was, like you said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Um, of course, this was before the fall. But if we, could, if we could imagine what that would be like, an equal respect and, and recognition of the gifts that, that God's placed in men yeah. and, and, and the gifts that God's placed in women and how important we, importantly we need each other. Mm. And um, I love uh, what Jen Wilkin says, I, I wrote this down because I, I love this quote. She says, we are not usur- usurpers. We are the possessors of every capacity you lack and the celebrators of every capacity you possess. Amen. We need each other. And if we could really believe that and act like, like I want to know and I want to recognize the, the giftings that God or the parts of God's image that he's put in men. Yeah that are lacking in women and then vice versa. And then it's like, wow. Yeah. We work together to bring glory and honor, uh, to God. And because that's our purpose, our purpose is for his glory for his honor. And so we work together to do that. Amen. Yeah. Amen. And I think that is so powerful. Mm. I think that's worth contending for. I agree. As a church. Yes. For us to see the value in one another and treasure so much. Yes. The differentiation between male and female differences and, and the way that God uses those for his glory. Man, I, I hope and long to see us grow in that as a body yeah. of believers. Yeah. And, and the church global. Yeah. Really. And I think there's going to have to be conversation yeah. and you're going to have to, I think both men and women both are going to have to and not get all riled up, but just like, okay, I want to hear. Yeah. I want to hear what it's like from a man's point of view. And I want to hear what it's like from a woman's point of view and not be offended. Right. Listen to each other and have the conversation. And I think that God can do an amazing thing if we're willing to do that. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So if you could speak then uh, prophetically into mm. the hearts of moms on Mother's Day. <laughs> What, what message do you think that you would bring to them today? Oh, boy. Um, I, I think that, number one, remember that your children are image bearers of God, mm. not image bearers of you. Because we oftentimes want to make them just like us. Yeah. And God, we're, they're not. And, and they are his. And our, our job 
as parents are to raise our children to be image bearers of God. And how can I do that when I change, like changing diapers and, you know, getting up in the middle of the night and sick kids and taking them to soccer games, all that stuff, all that stuff matters though, how you are responding because, um, you are reflecting the image of God. And so I, I would just say that probably is the biggest thing. They are in your home on purpose. God put them in your home specifically on purpose. So, yeah. Amen. Amen. Solid word. Okay. So, uh, for you personally, then, when you think about like all the experiences of motherhood, Mm -hmm. what do you think the greatest thing that God has taught you about your, about who he is, Mm -hmm. um, has been through through the vehicle of motherhood. How has God used motherhood to teach you about himself? Oh, uh, just the, like, I know that the passion and the desire I have for my kids to do well mm-hmm. um, and the love that I have that's, like, it doesn't matter what you do. I, I still love you. So that has been the biggest thing probably as a mother mm-hmm. is um, understanding who God is through through that and honestly, I have to say this because it was so powerful to me seeing my um, husband, you know, for, with my boys. And then when when our daughter, with Jonathan, when our daughter was born, as seeing them and the love that they had for their children. And, and in particular, one instance that has always stood out to me is when, when our daughter was a baby. She was an infant, probably just a couple months old. I didn't know where Jonathan was. I'm like, where is he? And I, I'm like, I found him in her room standing in the dark just standing there looking at her with tears running down his face. Mm. And I was so moved by that because God just showed me if a human father can love a child that much, how much more do you think I love you? He's so much more than that. And so the whole parenting thing, I think, is just a great example for us to understand how much God is, um, that we matter to him. As children, yeah. his children. Oh, man. That is, that is so true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had similar encounters yeah. with my own family where you're yeah. just like overwhelmed. Yeah. How much do you just wish that you could wring your heart out yes. <laughs> into yeah. them because you love them so much? Mm-hmm. Okay. In, in closing here, I want to do a little word association <laughs> thing here. And I want you to give us just like one word response uh, for for each of these categories, one word of encouragement uh, for every stage of life that that uh, women encounter and that moms encounter. Mm. So what is a one-word encouragement that you might give to new moms? Okay, I cheated a little bit. <laughs> There's a couple of them that have two words. Okay. <laughs> I would say to... The one word that came to my mind as to young to new moms is purpose. Purpose. And why? Because it's they are purposely placed in your home mm-hmm. and they are here for you to be an example Excellent. of God. Yeah. And show and point them towards him. Amen. Yeah. Okay, moms with littles. Um, I put joy and tired. <laughs> <laughs> That is two words. It is two <laughs> and words. And they seem mutually exclusive. <laughs> I know. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Joy and tired. I think that's pretty self I don't think I need to explain that. <laughs> I think every mom with littles would know that. Okay. That Moms means. with preteens. Um, I put si- sacred mundane. It's the time of where it's like, oh, they drive you crazy sometimes. And it's like you're just doing the same thing every week, taking them to soccer practice or right. You know, you whatever. Still have to drive them it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It matters. Yeah. It's sacred. sacred. It is. Mundane. Sacred mundane. Yeah. Yeah. Good description. Okay. Uh, moms with teens. Um, ibuprofen <laughs> and grace. <laughs> a lot of grace and a lot of ibuprofen. Those two words are not mutually exclusive. It's <laughs> all I could think of. Oh, gosh. Oh. Okay. What about single moms out there? Strength and wisdom are the two words um, because it takes a lot of strength and it takes a lot of wisdom, even with, even with a spouse. But if you're doing it by yourself, it's, it's, it's tough, but God is there with you, giving you the strength and the wisdom that you need. 
Amen. Okay. What about blended family models? I tightrope. <laughs> I couldn't think of another word, but that's yeah. how it feels. Because it's, yeah. it's, it's a tightrope that you walk. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that you're taking into consideration. And it's hard. Yeah. Um, but it's worth it. It's worth the work. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Okay. Uh, empty nest moms. Well, uh, that was bittersweet. Mm. Um, it's an important time to let go. That's the other words that I thought of is let go. Um, and it is a bittersweet time because you're excited for them, but you, you, you feel the emptiness. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's a transition that has to take place there, right? There is. Where you and go from like yeah. uh, coach, manager to yes. sort of like mentor. I'm here yep. if you need me. And that, that's, a, that's another tightrope to walk. Yeah. And um, you're not the number one person in their life anymore. And yeah. that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Okay. Moms of adults? Um, I, I just put joy. Mm. And, and then just the phrase, water to my soul. Because mm. it has definitely been that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I enjoy my kids. What about moms of adults that don't have that, that are missing that yeah. connection. What would you say to them? Well, you know, that kind of goes with the last one that you gave me, and that was prodigal. And yeah. um, lots of prayer and to have hope. Hope for something that's better that's coming. And and so um, don't be overcome with the the heaviness or the sadness of it, but to have hope. And, and obviously our hope isn't in ourselves or in them even. It's in what God's going to do in them and through them. Yeah. Um, I can't do it, but God can. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Would you do us all a favor, and would you pray for moms on mm -hmm. Mother's Day mm -hmm. and just ask a blessing on sure. them as we close out our time? Yeah. Father, it's such a privilege to be called your children. And specifically, your daughters, Lord. I thank you that you have used women to be part of the redemptive plan, Lord. It's a, such a privilege to be part of that. And even in the little things that we think are little, the mundane things of life as moms. Lord, I just pray that you would um, renew the hearts of women and moms at home with littles, moms with prodigals. Um, moms that are struggling with blended families, moms that are by themselves, Lord, you see them. And nothing is missed. And nothing is wasted. Lord, would you uh, just encourage them? May they sense your presence, Lord, even in the mundane things of life. Would they look to you for strength and for wisdom when they feel that they have none? And Lord, would they recognize that you are right there with them. Lord, I just pray a blessing on all the moms that are tuning in today, Lord, that they would sense your presence, that they would look to you even more for wisdom and strength and grace and hope above all else, Lord, as they see you as the giver of all good things. We thank you, Lord, so much for the, for the blessing and the honor to be a part of the work that you're doing here on this earth, Lord. Thank you for meeting us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this fine Mother's Day. God bless you, and I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Life is home.